Hi, Mary. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks, Dan. How are you? Yeah, great, thanks. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about last week's episode, conversation we had with Johnny. I suppose it wasn't exactly the most positive and uplifting episode, but an important one for all of us, really. And I guess what's been interesting, I feel like the general discourse around lockdown and how long it's going to last has sort of come that way a little bit over the last week. Maybe a greater realization that we are going to be in this for at least another, say another month, maybe more than that. And then even then, it's going to be an awfully long time before things are back to normal. Yeah, I think that's right. And I suppose more than ever, then it's important to have some coping mechanisms to help us get through however long this lockdown ends up being. That's it exactly, isn't it? It's just those little things. So, you know, go on, what's some of the little things that you're doing to put a bit of variety in your days, other than the fact that you're still presumably sort of getting used to your new house and doing a bit of home decorating and stuff? Yeah, we're halfway through sanding wooden floors. If anyone's done that, they'll understand how backbreaking that job is. But we're getting there. We're getting there, which is good. My main thing at the moment that I'm trying to do, which is difficult when the weather's bad, is just to get outside. There's a whole world out there. And although we can't explore much of it at the moment, just being outside, I think, makes such a difference to your day. So whether that's going out to kind of go running or just go for a walk or something. And I've discovered that Winchester is really quite hilly. <laughs> my uh, my running, I've been running quite a lot, but I'm nowhere near my old pace, which is a bit disappointing. But yeah, maybe I'll get there one day. I think the other big thing, to be honest, is just, it sounds really cliche to say it really, but just to be a bit kind to yourself. So if you have a day where you just don't fancy doing anything or you're not feeling motivated at work, kind of just let yourself have that. Because I think it's just so difficult to stay completely focused and motivated every single day when nothing changes every single day. Actually, just let yourself off a bit. But yeah, how about you, Dan? What have you been up to? Yeah, well, obviously, we've got little Leo keeping us busy. He's four months now, can you believe? So he's growing up a little bit. He's getting bigger. He's, he's changing in all sorts of ways every day. So yeah, he's a handful and keeps us busy, which is lovely. But a few other things as well. I mean, I, I've been trying to get my reading sorted so that I've got, you know, thing go-to reading materials to read and been quite enjoying the Barack Obama book that's just come out recently. It's very, very long and I'm reading it very slowly, but I quite enjoy reading sort of 10 or 20 pages an evening. He really goes through in a lot of detail the campaign and the early days of his presidency and those sort of things. I mean, he's currently on the bit where they're talking about the 2009 financial crisis, which is quite interesting. He's talking about all the wrangling they went through to get a $100 billion stimulus done, which was the first thing that happened back then, which seems kind of quaint. Apart from that, a bit of TV, getting back into our favorite series, which I think is quite nice. And the other one that I've been doing almost every week now, almost for the last year with a group of mates, is a bit of group sort of poker sessions. There's, there's some of the poker apps you can do a home game where it's just you, and you can get onto a video call as well and have a bit of chit-chat in the background while you're playing, which that's been reasonably nice way of doing a bit of socializing. Fantastic. Gives me an excuse to read a lot of poker blogs as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I haven't been reading poker blogs. My other half is quite into golf and he's been reading a putting book every night before bed. I don't understand how there is a huge hard book about putting, but I'm not a golf expert. He's also been watching webinars. He's got his putter in his office with him. We did have a discussion, a very lengthy discussion at one point about how we might be able to create effectively a small driving range in the garden using nets predominantly. And this morning he popped his head through the door and said, do you have any elastic bands? Which apparently is essential for some putting mechanism or technique that he's working on. So I'm sure it'll all be worth it when the golf courses are back open again. But yeah, I'd actually booked my first golf lesson the week before this lockdown started, which clearly immediately got cancelled. So I'm off the hook for now. Your golfing career is on hold for the time being, but shortly to be resumed, hopefully. Yeah, cool. Well, all right. Great. Well, each to their own, I suppose, but there's a variety <laughs> of ideas there. <laughs> Indeed. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, 
We cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So this week on Investment Uncut, we're returning to a theme we've talked a little bit about before. And I actually think it's going to be a theme that a lot of investors are going to be talking about, thinking about this year. And that's around infrastructure investing and around energy in particular. Joining us for the conversation today, we've got one of our experts in energy analytics, and that's Kyle Martin. Kyle, welcome back to the show. Hi there. Great to be back. Welcome, Kyle. So Kyle, last time we spoke, we discussed in a fair bit of detail the shifts that we need to happen in the power industry to achieve sort of net zero type targets. And I guess since we last spoke, there's been quite a lot of news in that area. So I guess it'd be helpful if you give a sort of overview of where things have got to. Yeah, it's been a busy few months. So I think probably the most significant thing we've seen is the government actually published their energy white paper, which I think has taken a little while to get ready and actually push out. But we did see that in December, and that really sets the scene for what policy and regulation needs to go into place to actually deliver net zero for the United Kingdom. So lots of interesting stuff in there through to from renewables being increased. Um, we saw the commitment from Boris to up that from 30 gigawatts to 40 gigawatt targets for 2030. And the energy white paper really covers the whole of the economy. So we're looking at batteries, we're looking at hydrogen, how nuclear plays a role in the future all the way through to are you using EVs or some other type of technology to drive around. So it's really all-encompassing. It's really pretty interesting, isn't it? Because it's kind of important, that stuff. I mean, I think last we talked, we mentioned some of these ideas, the ideas around hydrogen heating in houses, smaller scale nuclear, battery power to store electricity and those sort of things. And all those sound pretty interesting. They sound a little bit sort of futuristic, don't they, in a way? And I guess it was all, there's a big question mark over it all, wasn't there? And, and this, I guess, has, has made some of that a bit more certain, right? Yeah, I think there's definitely more incentives now. I think government is looking at doing, sort of, I think they call it a hydrogen town. I think it might be a hydrogen village now, but looking at actually what are the technical issues that you need to address to actually roll out these technologies across the country. Whereas some things are quite easy. So we already have quite a large renewable fleet in GB. So actually growing that out isn't the biggest problem we face. There are a lot of new ones that are now being brought up. Again, trying to get investment in very new first-of-a-kind projects poses its own issues for investors and the energy community in general. And I suppose just thinking about on a sort of almost more personal level, when we pay for our own power in our own houses, and there are various companies now offering 100% renewable energy sources, what sort of, I guess, what trends have you seen over recent periods and in that sort of market? And how much of a good impact do those renewable energy companies have? Or are they, do they mean individuals are doing enough if they go 100% renewable on their energy? Or is there far more they need to be doing? Yeah, I think we've certainly seen consumer choice really expand recently. So I think we started seeing renewable tariffs come in sort of maybe around a decade ago, where you had companies basically buying renewable energy or actually having them develop for themselves, actually powering people's homes. It's now where you might see companies sort of buying some of those green credits and then sort of saying it's green, but it might be sort of greenwashing in some ways. So we definitely see consumer interest for them peak and sort of companies respond to that by trying to provide more renewable tariffs. I think the other big change we've seen recently is those smarter tariffs where actually if you have a evening of high prices in the market, you'll see companies saying, actually, if you can turn off your power, you'll be helping the system and you'll be charged lower amounts for using power when it's more expensive. And probably some of the big ones we've seen is that over weekends where it's been very windy, lots of sun and low demand, we actually see some negative prices. You see some tariffs where people are actually paid to turn on their sort of washing machines over the weekend. So 
really interesting dynamic, actually letting people take a bit more control of their power and use it more effectively. Yeah, do you think that's going to be part of the future of the way we consume power and stuff? Because I guess one of the very obvious issues with wind power and renewables is they're not available all the time in the same way other things are. So we're, we're going to rely more and more on those kind of smart tariffs and people turning things on and off, do you think? I think it will go beyond that quite quickly, actually. I think you'll get to a point where you'll be on a tariff. You'll have a company controlling your fridge, your freezer, your cooker to a certain degree, your lights. And actually, you won't be doing things yourself. So you won't have to reach behind the fridge and try to turn that off. You'll have a company actually running all that for you. So you'll see a system which is much smarter and able to use power and turn it up and down depending on what the system actually needs. So I think that's all the next jump is how do you actually start to automate a lot of those processes. That sounds to me, you know, just thinking of the Victorian house that I live in and whether the structure is there to have, I have a smart meter, but having that level of interaction. And I suppose also with some of the newer technologies that are coming through, so hydrogen you mentioned, and whether hydrogen gas as a power source is consistent with the setup I have in my home at the moment and whether actually more work is needed in that area. So do we have a very long way to go before those sorts of technologies are much more readily available and rolled out? Yeah, it always seems like it is a bit further out than it is, but effectively we have to decarbonise quite quickly. So actually, if you bought a new gas boiler today, it probably lasts you for around sort of 10, 15 years, by which point we're in sort of 2035. And actually, we need to be doing stuff quite quick and getting these new systems in place to actually allow you to decarbonise much quicker than that, whereas people do lock themselves into another sort of 10, 15 years of the same technology. I think within the heating area, there's probably two big technologies coming through, and that's your, your heat pump. So that's basically having a heat pump that will be using electricity to heat your home. And there's much more of a sort of continuous slower heating system. So I think you have to have quite high energy efficiency in your home and sort of learn to keep it on rather than turning it on and off when you want to have heat versus obviously having a hydrogen network, which again will require some changes, but probably a lot of the existing infrastructure, sort of your gas pipes, your sort of boiler technology as it is, can be adapted to use some of that technology. But again, it is sort of at a crossroads about which way we go right now. And there are sort of competing trends, whether or not we go for electrification with heat pumps or if we go down the route of hydrogen for home heating. And this is really important, isn't it? Because like you say, Mary, these are sort of one-off infrastructure build-outs that are going to last for decades and decades. And maybe even, you know, I'm sure there are houses that have got 50-year-old heating systems in them quite easily, maybe older than that. So it's a big choice, I guess, isn't it? Not something we can suddenly change course on. Like you say, Kyle, you normally invest in a boiler, you expect that to be 10, 15 years that's going to be good for. So it's kind of important that get this right before people start ripping out and redoing their homes and stuff, if that's what needs to happen. What sort of factors, Kyle, do you think will influence that decision in on which direction we end up going? So it's probably partly down to your location. So you could see a scenario where you might have some villages, towns, off-grid scenarios where actually having an electric installation, if you're not near the gas network currently, makes complete sense. And that also applies to new builds. So if you're building a brand new property, you build it to a very high efficiency standard and put a heat pump in there. And the government's already going to ban gas boilers in the next decade. I think it's 2025. They want to phase those out by for new builds. So you see those have an obvious use case for actually having electricity as their heat source. But it starts to be a bit trickier is then when you get down to sort of decarbonizing maybe a city and you've got maybe 100 houses in a street all switching onto electric at which point you'll have to be probably upgrading their network infrastructure. So having bigger cables for their homes, so they can actually power the potentially their EVs, their heating and all their usual lights, etc. At that point, will it actually be more effective or cheaper to actually use gas and hydrogen to actually heat those homes? And probably one of the biggest things would be actually how much will it cost to actually produce that hydrogen? I think now we don't see much hydrogen production in the UK. We need to get to a place where we can produce that greenly as well. So we have to need to make sure we don't emit carbon while doing that. So either you use blue hydrogen through sort of gas reformation, or you do something with electrolysis, where you'll be using sort of green power to make hydrogen without carbon at all. 
And if you can do that cheaply enough, that becomes an option. If you can't do that cheaply enough, sort of electricity could then be the, uh, the dominant source. So I think it will come down to economics in the end. As it often does. There's a lot in there, a lot of technical details in there on the hydrogen stuff. But I guess on a really simple level, just help me understand what that looks like when you're saying a house is being sort of heated by hydrogen. Does that basically mean instead of gas coming in, you've got effectively hydrogen coming in through the same pipes? Or what does it look like? Yeah, exactly the same. So there's been quite a lot of upgrade work on the gas networks to replace some of their older infrastructure with new sort of plastic piping to avoid any leakage of hydrogen. So once that's done, you can effectively have a similar boiler. You need to have it hydrogen ready or a hydrogen boiler to be installed. But effectively, you just switch your type of gas from sort of that natural gas over to a hydrogen gas instead. And who pays for that upgrade? At the moment in the current system, if I need a new boiler, I pay for it myself. But if there's a strong drive from the government and other parties to move towards a hydrogen-friendly system, do I get a grant to buy a new boiler? Or is, do we know much about that yet? Not too much about that quite yet. But I would imagine at some point it will be a case of those that can afford it to a certain degree before you think to upgrade when they get the new boiler. So if you're looking at similar costs, I think that will be very similar to what you do now. You'll switch over to a boiler. For those that maybe can't afford it or need some support, I imagine some sort of grant or loan might be available. Again, with trying to put hydrogen in place, you can't really have a mixed grid. So you can't have sort of one house on gas, one house on hydrogen, etc. It's got to be your whole street will have to switch on the same day. Ah, that is tricky, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So then you get the issue of, can you make the whole street switch at once? How quickly can you do it? What other services are they using gas for? So they have to change their cooker, their hobs. So it does grow as a, as, as a slightly larger issue to try and do that, but it's possible. And can you get a hydrogen cooker? How does that work? Or would that have to be electric? You can get hydrogen cookers as well. So it would be possible, I think. Whether or not, again, electricity takes that role from them, we'll have to see. Personally, I'm a big fan of induction hobs, so I won't be switching to hydrogen myself, but I'm sure there's some who might. And to state the obvious, you don't burn the hydrogen, do you? Or is that a really dumb question? Yeah, you burn the hydrogen. You do? You burn it? Okay. That is a dumb question. We might cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, might, might, might want to. But yeah, no, you burn it as a natural gas, you just have it in the boiler and it will just burn the same. I think it might burn slightly lower to be a slightly lighter gas, but yeah, you just burn the same as the other ones. And the idea is it burns without producing carbon dioxide. Is that the key? Yeah. So the way hydrogen works, it will just produce water, I think, water not oxygen, I think when that gets split back out. So we've focused so far our conversation on sort of household use of power. Is that the big issue here in terms of reaching the sort of net zero target or are there bigger players that will have a bigger impact that also need to be taking action? Yes, I think domestic is interesting because it is pretty up for debate around which technology does win. I think some of those other technologies and other industries are maybe slightly easier. So if we look at things like shipping and aviation, I don't think we see them being electrified as easily. So I think for them, they'll need some other source of fuel to actually decarbonize themselves. And whether that's hydrogen or another gas, I think those industries will need something different there for them just because electricity just doesn't work. And when we're talking about electrification, I mean, I suppose it's all very well saying we can electrify vast parts of the heating systems and cars and everything, but that's going to entail a huge increase in the amount of electricity we need to produce, presumably, in, in on grid. I mean, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think our electrical consumption has been sort of steadily declining for about a decade, which is sort of good in some ways because it produces carbon and stuff in producing electricity. But we'll be facing a massive ramp up in the amount of electricity we're going to need to produce. Yeah, exactly. We've had a period now where we've seen energy efficiency really coming forward. So we've actually had a year-on-year -year drop in the amount of energy or amount of electricity we actually consume. But you're right, as soon as we start decarbonizing other sectors through electrification, that will start to add to that load again. So we do see quite a steep increase, especially when that sort of EV rollout really does take off as we start to decarbonize more houses through electric heating. Once that happens, it is a very steep curve. And you're right, having the renewables on the system to actually provide that power 
will be essential. Otherwise, you're basically going to be burning gas to power that electrification, which isn't ideal. So we've talked about hydrogen and hydrogen gas, sorry, as an alternative source of power. What other alternatives are we seeing being developed at the moment? I think sort of big picture, we sort of see renewables being one of the biggest players in the market, and we see them really taking over electricity supply going forwards. Other new technologies that are going to be helping is that we still need to sort of balance the system and provide backup power. So we'll see things like battery storage coming through. And batteries have been seen as one of the more interesting technologies recently. I think maybe over the last sort of four or five years, we've really seen them come to market and start to deploy at scale. I'm actually did a report on that the other week, looking at the opportunities for batteries in the GB market. Essentially, they'll start to play a role, especially in sort of short duration terms, sort of intraday balancing between your sort of afternoon, evening peak, and then overnight recharging. We really see those having a big advantage doing that. But then things like pump storage, hydro, so big, a big lake in Scotland where you fill up with water, discharge it when prices are high, and then recharge it when prices are low. We see those sort of technologies also coming through and doing a lot of that heavy lifting. And then probably one of the other big ones will be sort of nuclear power and what we see with that. We already have Hinkley Point C being built currently, and size we'll see in sort of commercial negotiations to see what they can get from a contract. And they're potentially looking at some sort of regulated asset base being used for them. But I think government's keen to see some of those new modular reactors coming through, other designs, as well as other sort of technologies that can help the system in the future. Yeah, I mean, the nuclear one is probably one to pick up on. I mean, you see this debate sort of popping up quite often just on social media and those sort of things. Everyone can sort of say, look, renewables are great. We love a bit of wind power kind of thing. But you don't have to spend too much time thinking about it to realize that that doesn't work sort of all the time. And there's quite a heavy sort of weight of argument behind saying, look, nuclear sort of really merits a place in that mix. I think people have made that case. But the issue is, would appear to be that the current projects have taken ages to come to fruition. And I think there's quite a lot of stuff coming out of commission in the next 10 years, isn't there? So it feels like the nuclear thing has really kind of dwindled a little bit. So do you see the white paper kind of getting behind nuclear in the future and giving it a good platform to sort of develop from? Yeah, I think government's been quite clear that they want to see more nuclear coming through, whether we see sort of size will see and some of those other big ones coming through, or whether or not the focus has shifted more into some of those modular, smaller reactor technologies. I definitely think nuclear still has a role to play in the market, and I think we'll see them continue to deploy. Again, being sort of type of infrastructure projects they are, these are one huge piece of infrastructure, whereas a wind farm has sort of seen the benefits and solar to actually deploying one scheme after another and sort of learning as you start to build these out. And they've been very good at commercializing those sort of improvements very quickly to where we are today. So in terms of, I mean, you've mentioned, of course, a few times government being behind various areas of innovation. I guess, what part do private investors have to play? So government is supporting, vocally supporting various initiatives and in a monetary way, supporting various initiatives. Where do private investors come in? I think depending on where they want to be stepping into the market, I think there's lots of opportunity. I mean, just about everything we do today will have to be either redone, changed or upgraded by the time we sort of get to 2050. So I think it depends on what their sort of their risk appetite looks like. I think things like renewables are very mature now. I think people understand the framework behind them. So we have a, something called a contract for difference mechanism, which sort of secures finance for 15 years. So I think that's been very good and very easy for people to understand how they get their money from that scheme. When we start to get into some of those sort of new technologies, if you're looking at things like batteries, some pump storage, and then into sort of hydrogen, especially electrolyzers, we really start to see people get a bit harder to make the business case work. I think at that point, you sort of need government to step in, do some of the heavy lifting with some grants, with some test projects to actually get people to understand how these will interact with the market, what that framework looks like longer term. But until that point in time, I think it is going to be slightly more risky as you try to see what will come forwards and whether or not they'll be successful or not at the moment. It's interesting looking back, isn't it, to the early days of renewables? I mean, I remember looking at offshore wind in about eight or nine years ago initially, and then probably more seriously, maybe 
five or six years ago for clients. And yeah, to begin with, it, I got to be honest, it was quite difficult to get your head around what investment risks you were taking, in what scenarios was it going to go wrong. It was almost quite hard to find scenarios in which it would go wrong back then because the government support and subsidies were so good that they were really taking away a lot of the risk. And so it was almost this question of, well, isn't it a bit too good to be true? And I think it probably did turn into a good case study in getting private capital involved in that because the support mechanisms seem to have worked. And as you say, now it's matured, the returns on offer have sort of come down, but investors are a lot more comfortable with it as a, a sort of a proposition. So I suppose that maybe gives a little bit of a guidelines to what sort of these future think batteries and hydrogen, the way they could go, right? Yeah, I think it will. I think especially with hydrogen is actually you need to actually build these things, whatever technology you choose to use. There's no mechanism there currently. So you can't ask government to give you a contract because there isn't one made for them yet. So it's very much a case of government needs to think about how it wants to fund these and then start to put some of those, some of that meat on the bone for investors to actually say, great, we can see how this will return our investment um, and just how it expects to operate in the um, energy market going forwards. Yeah. And I, I think one thing I've always said, when you look at the investments in offshore wind, let's say, that's happened over the last 10 years, you see a lot of overseas investors actually have quite sizable investments in UK offshore wind. I think that's all the ownerships in the public domain and the Canadian pension funds, Australians, Middle Easterns, Chinese, Japanese, I think they're all there as investors. So they're clearly sort of sought after assets in the global sense. And I guess that period of time when the investors are trying to get comfortable with the system and the energy sector is trying to sort of make the case for investment is, is a really crucial period of time, isn't it? Because I guess if investors can get comfortable fairly quickly, things can really take off. Whereas if it sort of goes around in circles, then you can see it not really working. So I guess that's the period of time we're facing. It feels like in some of these new areas. So I suppose a call to both sides to kind of engage with it, be open-minded and try and help the other side see their point of view a little bit. So Kyle, what kind of timeframes are we talking about here? So we've got net zero target by 2050. We're in 2021 now. What has to happen when for us to be achieving those targets? How quickly do these new sources of power have to be up and running and widely used? I think for the electricity sector, we're probably going to see the biggest amount of change. I think the most recent forecast from National Grid, who's our system operator in GB, put out their sort of long-term forecasts. And they've been saying that into the mid to early 2030s, we'll expect to see power be net negative. So we'll actually see the power system taking carbon out of the atmosphere overall. And that's because we'll be using something called a bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. So basically, we'll be burning biomass, capturing the carbon produced by it and storing it underground or somewhere safe. So that's a huge change for that sector. So I think power, you'll see a change continuing, ramping up, if anything, over the next decade. I think the same across all other sectors. I don't think those are easier to reach. So things like EVs, we see the government ban. As we mentioned, heat pumps will be increasingly rolled out across the country. I think all these things will just continue to move very fast. And actually, we're going to see some of the larger changes with those first-of-a-kind projects for heavy industry, for sort of shipping aviation, where you start to see some of those very new technologies and new ways of doing things starting to come through. Again, we'll be seeing them now over the next decade until they get something secured that works for them, that can be scaled up and developed commercially. It's such an interesting concept, isn't it? The idea that the whole sector will be removing carbon from the atmosphere. I find that just fascinating. But I suppose we are at the stage now where it's not really good enough just to stop at the level we're at. We actually need to be reversing some of that change. No, exactly. When you think back, maybe 10 years ago, we were using quite a lot of coal still. It's a, it's a big shift just over the last 10 years, let alone the next 10 years. Yeah, well, that's it. That's what I find so interesting. These timescales are really not that long. I mean, sometimes people throw out 2050 net zero and it does seem like it's kind of like far, far away. But as soon as, like you say, you work back from that and then you're saying, well, actually, we need to be net negative before 2050, which means we need to make a big dent in it in the next sort of decade. 
then suddenly you're talking about stuff that's really not very far off and is really in the time frame of people's current purchasing decisions or the next car people are getting, the next boiler you're getting, and just the sheer scale of it. We're talking about all the homes around the country potentially that need to be changing all the cars and everything. It's a bit mind-boggling, isn't it, once you put all that scale in there as well? It's a real mix. When you start to look at, I mean, a lot of the consumer items like cars, you, you change your car relatively frequently, whereas some of those coal-fired power stations we're shutting down now were built in the 1970s. So uh, those very big pieces of infrastructure, once you lock those in, trying to take them off the system before their time is difficult. And uh, of course, the costs need to be recovered somewhere. So making those decisions now, making them carefully is very important. And of course, from the investor perspective as well, I mean, if investors are going to invest in these new generation assets, they're probably banking on them generating power for 20 or 30 years, aren't they? I'm sure that's the assumption behind offshore wind farms, nuclear batteries, whatever. So I guess you do need that certainty of lifetime generation from them. Otherwise, they're completely uninvestable from an investment perspective, aren't they? And you can't get the private capital in. Yeah, absolutely right. I guess the other thing that I sort of reflect on, I think Sonia Lord actually from Legal and General mentioned this when we chatted to her last year. So the existing power company, so oil and gas, for example, and there's obviously quite a few oil and gas companies based in the UK. What does all of this mean for them? Presumably, if tomorrow we withdrew all support for oil and gas companies, we're not at a stage where we're ready to fully transition power generation to fully exclude those companies. But there needs to be a transition that happens as we've already sort of touched on in the next not that many few years. How do you see that playing out, Kyle, in terms of the transition and the future of those types of companies? I think we're going to see something similar to what we've been seeing recently, and that is most of the big companies who are looking beyond their current sort of portfolio projects, very much oil and gas heavy, are trying to divest themselves. You'll see sort of Shell, BP, I think BP was mentioned today in the news, trying to divest its portfolio, try to invest more in renewables and electricity production. EV charging, etc. So you see a lot of the big oil companies who are in their forecourts for petrol, and obviously they're sort of pumping to pump and actually having people refuel using their oil products. You're seeing them actually now start to change who they're buying. So buying a lot of sort of EV charging manufacturers, EV charging companies, starting to deploy charging at their forecourts. Again, they're already in a very good position to be targeting that market because that is already is their market. I think they're very acutely aware that if they don't switch to a more renewable, more electrified future, they'll find themselves slowly out of business, which I think there's enough people in those companies to realize now is a good time to start to look at actually how do we sort of, again, the word switch is difficult because you want to try to electrify and try to decarbonize yourselves, but then recognize that a large part of your business is still based in the oil and gas. So it is a transition instead of a switch, I think, this process. Yeah, that is important, isn't it? The terminology there, actually, you're right, because switch kind of puts the wrong imagery in your mind, like you're flipping over from one thing to another, whereas it is a transition. I mean, in terms of those companies, the sort of energy super majors of tomorrow, if you like, I think we're already seeing in the last year or so, there's been some landmarks in terms of a lot of these renewable companies like NextEra, Iberdrola and Orsted are starting to overtake a lot of the oil majors in terms of market capitalization now. So I think that Orsted passed BP and Iberdrola passed Exxon or something over the course of the last year. And those are the companies that have pivoted from years ago, really pivoted from fossil fuels to renewables early, I guess, have sort of blaze the path for what others might try and do. Yeah, I think that's right. I think we'll keep to see that same trend in the future as more companies need to divest away and actually invest in renewables. I think that's only going to be growing in the future as we see that change happen throughout the economy. So Kyle, as we get towards the end of this discussion, I guess, what sort of things do you think investors should be looking out for this year? What sort of things should they be looking out for in five years time? And what sort of things in 10 years time, just based on how you're seeing the market develop at this stage? Yeah, so I suppose short term, we'll be looking at more of the same almost. We'll be looking at renewables. We'll have another auction later this year for the next allocation round for those CFDs I mentioned. 
And that's, again, with a very increased ambition from government, both in offshore wind, but also looking at things like onshore wind, as well as solar and other technologies. So that's one big one for the real immediate future. We still need to provide firm power, so have power available when we need it, when there is no wind or low levels of sunlight. So I think we'll be looking at how do you provide that firm capacity in the future through sort of very low carbon or zero carbon solutions. So I think that's more the short term is how do we address that now. Medium term, I think we'll continue to see batteries being deployed and probably their durations increase. So we'll start to see them becoming more useful to the system going forwards. I imagine there'll be lots more opportunities for them over the next decade. And then some of those other interesting aspects of the system, such as EV charging infrastructure, some of the suppliers with smart tariffs and how you start to use some of that capacity more smartly, I think will start to come through. And then beyond that, you probably have much more of the sort of new infrastructure needing to come through, such as your heat pumps, your hydrogen, your hydrolysis, et cetera. So very much those coming forward now and being first of a kind or very early stages of commercial development. And we'll probably see them really ramp up to being a key part of the system in 10 years time and beyond. All right, Carl, that was a great little list of stuff to watch out for. And trying to sift through all of that, I mean, what's the one thing you'd like listeners to take away from this episode out of all of that? Probably that we are going to see a significant amount of change in the future. I think investing in these net zero technologies really is going to be the way forwards and sort of finding your niche as an investor and trying to develop that and commercialize it. Now is a great time to really get at the forefront of this sort of new industry. Fantastic. Good time to have recorded this episode in that case. And Kyle, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about this area at the moment? I still think it's the scale of the challenge. When you look at it, it really is huge. And there's so much change and so much infrastructure that has to be built. I still don't think we're completely on top of the investment challenge here. And actually getting people in that space that says we need to change literally everything we do today will have to be changed completely, not just in our lives and what we use and how we go about our business, but sort of the infrastructure behind it all has to change. So I think it's really the scale of the issue, drawing people on board, but actually all focusing towards that common goal and decarbonizing the whole economy. Wow. Excellent. Yeah. And then switching tack slightly then, any recommendations on things that have been keeping you interested right now? You know, books, podcasts, TV shows, anything? So I think probably what I've spent most of my lockdown doing is reading cookery books for some of those places we can't go to anymore. So I've got a very good book on Wagamamas over Christmas. I've been practicing some of my cooking there and trying to recreate some of those dishes we're all missing from the restaurants being closed. So that's been my hobby for lockdown. What's your speciality then off the Wagamamas cookbook? Oh, I see the katsu curry, doesn't it? That's it, yeah. <laughs> nice. When you first said you'd been reading cookery books, I was hoping you'd also been practicing the cooking bit as well. So that sounds great. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a fantastic discussion. Really, really interesting. Perfect. Thanks both again. Thanks, Kyle. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us again for another episode next week. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.